Hello, friends. Really glad to be with you this morning. So if you're visiting and you don't know who I am, I'm Joel. I'm the lead pastor here at the Gospel Tab. So thank you so much for being with us. Um, We're starting a new series today. So I want to just introduce that to you and tell you a little bit where we're going from here in our preaching. Um, So we just wrapped up a series on worship. Three of our worship leaders, Kiara and Jake and John, uh, brought messages to us in the last few weeks. And I I really appreciated the way that kind of even just practically broke down some of the things that we're experiencing in worship. There's no doubt the temperature, the intensity of our worship has increased during the time of the pandemic, actually. And so uh, it's good to put some teaching behind that, and it's good to understand some of what's happening among us. So I really appreciated their ministry. Um, I'm going to be with you for the next four weeks, including today, so today and the next three weeks, um, talking some about our value of reconciliation. Um, So out on the wall uh, of of the foyer here, uh, we have listed our our values. Um, Those weren't just arbitrarily chosen. A few years ago, we decided to try to articulate uh, what we were experiencing, uh, theologically articulate what we were experiencing in terms of what we understood the church to be. And so out of that came kind of this robust statement of values. You can read it on our website. We just kind of have the the main uh, concepts out on the wall. Um, But many times when I'm with you, in front of you, I'll be speaking to those values because we share those values, not just as a Gospel Tab family, but with the wider family of ministries that have been birthed out of the Gospel Tab or has started other places and came into our network. And so at this point, that includes church plants and house churches and nonprofit organizations and businesses. So when I'm speaking to us on these values, I'm also speaking to that wider network because we're going to record uh, some of these basic teachings that we hold and get them onto a podcast eventually. Um, So today we're going to talk some about our value of reconciliation. Uh, We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in some other verses as well, but if you want to get there in your Bibles or your device, that would be helpful. It will always also be up on the screen. So I'm going to do these next few weeks with you on reconciliation. And then we're starting a series in the book of Exodus, especially talking about Moses' birth through the time that Israel was delivered from Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. So we'll be in the Old Testament book of Exodus together. And I don't know if you know this, but at this point, there are 17 men and women who preach at the Gospel Tab, Um, 17 people who minister to you in this way. And uh, they, some of them will be preaching that series to you both here and at the Franklin Avenue campus. And just so you know, it will not be the same people at at, uh, both campuses. We're hoping to be able to start recording at both campuses. By the time we get to the Exodus series, we're going to do our best. Um, But it will be different people preaching here and at Franklin Avenue, Um, just so you're aware of that. So that's some of where we are headed together. But I'm really grateful to be in this series talking about reconciliation. Um, First and foremost, we're doing this, talking about what it means to be a reconciled people along uh, cross lines of race and class. Um, Because first of all, it's a biblical value. And first and foremost, that's what's driving this for us, is not what the culture says we should be, is not, you know, I don't know, some kind of outside pressure on us. Uh, You misunderstand us if you think that's what's happening. Um, For us, this is rooted in Scripture. Uh, We see this all throughout the pages of Scripture. We're going to be focusing on really just four passages over the next month, but we could pull so 
many passages and preach on them, um, talking about God's heart for reconciliation. But that being said, first and foremost, it's a biblical value, but it's also contextually necessary that we talk about this, especially as a missional movement of people. It's contextually necessary that we talk about what it means to be a reconciled people, especially across lines of race and class and culture, for a few reasons. Number one, this is a global issue and has been for all of history, divisions between people along lines of race and class. I've been in Sri Lanka uh, in times of prayer where we were seeing reconciliation happen between Pakistani and Indian believers because of all the racial and ethnic division that exists, has existed between those two groups of people, beautiful times of shedding tears and reconciling with one another. I've been with an ethnic minority on the shore of Senegal in, in, uh, in North Africa. Uh, some of uh, friends of ours are doing relief and development work among this ethnic minority because they come from a different ethnic group, they speak a different language, they experience oppression in their context. Uh, you can't really go any place in the world where these issues aren't going to pop up, and that's the testimony of Scripture itself. It's certainly an American issue. You cannot understand American history without understanding the different classes of people that were created even from our founding, particularly along the lines of skin color. And friends, we're in denial if we don't think that this is a local issue. As our, as our ministries are doing network, as our ministries are doing ministry in Beaver County and now heading into Allegheny County, one thing you just can't avoid about this area is the divisions that exist along the lines of race and class. Listen, I was just in Atlanta this last week, and one thing that's always stunning to me in Atlanta is how in so many neighborhoods, people are living beside people who look different from them and are from different cultures and who you know, have had different life experiences. I'm just telling you, not much of that happens in our area, if you've paid attention. Um, largely, in, in most cases, our school districts, our neighborhoods are really split up along the lines of race and class. So as we do ministry in these places, we're asking what God wants in our area. And I'm not going to get into all of this today, but my goodness, if I were to like recount to you all of the things that God has spoken to us even prophetically over the last few years about how God wants us to engage these issues and be a reconciled people, it would be more than I could even fit into this sermon. So we're doing this really because it's biblical, um, but we also believe that it's contextual, it's appropriate for where we're at, and we believe that God has spoken to us specifically on this. So this is where this value came from for us. Now, we're gonna talk about some uncomfortable things over the next four weeks. And, and I want to ask you, our last, our last um, series that we did together on our values was on the Bible. And we were talking about reading the Bible with humility and curiosity, not approaching the text as over and above it, but as approaching it humbly and letting it speak to us and challenge us, encourage us, comfort us, but also challenge us as well. I have no doubt that there's going to be some things over the next four weeks that challenge us, but I want to encourage you to come to these worship gatherings with openness and humility, um, with curiosity, being willing to admit what you might not know and being willing to learn. And I really believe that the Gospel Tab family is a place where we can have these conversations. So many of you have modeled this uh, really well. 
And so I'm excited to, to be in this with you. Okay, we're going to read from Genesis. Oh, I said Genesis 2. Genesis 1 in just a moment. Um, but before we do, let me tell you why we're turning to the beginning of the Bible to frame our discussions on this issue. It's important that as we begin to discuss reconciliation together that we begin in the right starting place. Because not every conversation happening today in our society on reconciliation, racism, racial and economic justice, not every place where these conversations are happening have the same starting point. And you need to know that. Um, not every place where these, sometimes the same words are being used, words like justice. Um, but sometimes they don't mean the same thing that we would mean by that word. And so it's important for us to have the right starting place. For us, as the people of God, we're turning to the beginning of the book, right? And we love to say that we're Bible people. So we're turning to the book of Genesis to allow our thoughts on these topics to be shaped by what the Word of God says, right? By what He's revealed to us in His Word. Now, a little caveat here. Just because in society people don't mean the same things that we mean all the time when we talk about these issues doesn't mean that we can't partner with people who disagree with us to alleviate the pain of people who are living in poverty or to work for justice, for those who've been marginalized and oppressed, we can partner with people uh, who are different than us, um, especially as we're doing ministry and mission out in the world. And yet, we want to make sure that we have a gospel contribution to those discussions, right? That we have a gospel-centered, Christ-centered contribution to the places where these discussions are happening and where people are talking about this stuff. So I'm hoping that the next few weeks will help us find some language for how we engage these issues together. So, in order for us to talk about reconciliation between humans, I think it would be good for us to first talk about what humans are in the first place, according to God, who created us, and then to build our discussions from that place. So to do that, we go to the beginning of our Bibles, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Hey, I was preaching in South Georgia last weekend. I missed you all. I love being with you. Um, missed, being, uh, missed you while I was away. Um, but I went to go read the Word of God in front of, in, in, in front of the group that I was preaching to in South Georgia, and they all stood to their feet, and I thought, we used to do this at the Gospel Tab. And I don't know where, it, maybe during the pandemic our practice changed, but can we reinstate that? I would love it if you stood to your feet as we read the Word of God together. We're going to read other passages too. I won't make you stand every single time, um, but uh, it's a good practice for us just to honor the written Word. Here's what it says in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Actually, could you read it with me out loud off the screen? Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, over the years, interpreters of Scripture have noticed three ways for us to talk about what these verses are describing. When we read these verses, one uh, summary statement we can make out of them is that humans have been created in the image of God. You may have heard that language before. Humans have been created in the image of God. And for any discussion on reconciliation across, across lines of race and class, we have to start here. 
um, talking about what it means to be created in the image of God. Over the years, interpreters of Scripture have noticed three ways that these verses describe what it means to be created in God's image. So what does that mean when we say that, to be created in the image of God? Uh, We can talk from these verses about three concepts. I'm going to say them repeatedly so you can try to remember them. The image of God as substance, the image of God as relationship, and then the image of God as rulership. So the image of God as substance, the image of God as relationship, and then the image of God as rulership. So let's break this down. First of all, Uh, What do we mean by the image of God as substance? We mean that in the very substance of what it means to be human, somehow we are like God. The Hebrew word that's translated in your Bibles as likeness means exactly what it sounds like in English, that somehow we are like God. And the Hebrew word for image, when it says we were created in God's image, can refer to representation. So even though humans aren't exactly like God and we aren't God ourselves, Somehow we are like him. And because we are like him in a way that the rest of the creation is not, we are suited to represent him to the rest of creation. Um, Consider how these same words are used later on in Genesis chapter 5 just to describe the birth of Adam's son, who he named Seth. Seth isn't exactly like Adam, but he has Adam's image and likeness. Look what it says in Genesis 5.3. Adam had a son in his own likeness in his own image, and he named him Seth. It's the same language that's used at the beginning of Genesis. Now, over the years, some have debated, even tried to come up with lists of what it means in substance to be like God, like what characteristics of being human are like God? Is it that we're relational, or is it that we can create? But it's best not really to come up with definitive lists, and instead just to embrace the mystery of this. Let me give you an example. Just like Adam created Seth, and Seth was in his likeness and image, the same is true of, for my kids with me and Chelsea, right? By looking at my kids, you can probably tell that somehow they're in me and Chelsea's image and likeness, right? But it might be a little bit hard to describe how that's true. It might be their mannerisms. It might be the vocabulary that they use. It might be some physical features. But notice, it would even change from kid to kid, right? I have three children, they inherited different physical features, different personality traits, and we, it, we spend a lot of time, even me and Chelsea, kind of observing and taking joy in the way that they reflect our image and our likeness. Well, I would say the tr- same is true of the human race. Um, there's different traits, there's different ways that we might reflect God, but the testimony of Scripture is that in some way, humans are like God, and because they're like Him, they are suited to represent him to the rest of creation. Secondly, the image of God as relationship. So we're talking about the image of God as substance. Here's the image of God as relationship. Notice that in these verses, Genesis 1, 26 to 27, God uses the plural us to describe his activity in creating humans. We can throw that verse back up there. Let us create humankind in our image, in our likeness. We think that this is a reference to God's relational nature, that he is one, this is what we confess, that he is one, but that he exists eternally for all eternal past in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's appropriate, even though God is only one, um, it's appropriate for him in his nature, which is three in one, to say, let us create humans in our own image. In our own image, God didn't create humans because he was lonely. I want you to know that. God didn't create people because he needed someone to relate to. Rather, it's in God's very essence 
before humans were ever created to be relational because he has existed for all eternity past in loving relationship with himself, in the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And human beings were created out of that love relationship that God had with himself, much in the same way that parents might have the capacity to create children out of their love for each other. Um, it wasn't that God needed something. Um, it's just that God loved us, in a sense, before we were ever even created. And out of that love relationship, he created for us. And so what this means is that part of what it means to be created in the image of God is for us to be made for relationship with him. Um, one way to think about this is putting an imprint of a hand in wet concrete, you know, or wet clay. Um, if I put my hand into wet concrete or wet clay and pulled it up, what would be left is something that was in my image, right? But not the same as me. It's distinct from the person that created it, but my hand would fit perfectly in that, right? I would say that's what the human race is to God. Uh, we are his imprint. Um, we are created in his image, and part of being created in his image is being created for this relationship. Um, we fit him like hand to glove right? Because he created us, because he made us his own. And this relational capacity doesn't just extend to God, it extends to each other as well. Notice that the first humans are made male and female, different from each other, distinct from each other in very noticeable ways, but with capacity to exist in close, loving, intimate relationship with each other. This relational capacity, this is important as we talk about reconciliation, this relational capacity even extends to loving the person who is other than us, who is different than us. This is, this is built in at the beginning, the capacity to love people who are also created in the image of God, but very distinct from us and very different from us. So to be created in the image of God has something to do with substance. It's just what we are. We're like God. We represent God. It has something to do with our capacity for relationship. But then there's also this thing about rulership. In Genesis 1, 26 through 27, God gives these first humans the ability to rule over the creation, the fish and the animals and all of these things. Um, God gives these humans dominion over the earth. So we don't just represent God. Listen, this is amazing. We don't just represent God. We also rule with him. God shares his rulership with us. And this aspect of being created in God's image highlights humanity's special place, right, in the creation with a special responsibility to care for the earth and to care for each other. This special place in the creation, this rulership is meant to be used, this power is meant to be used how God uses his rulership, which is to serve and not to harm and to destroy, right? So the sum of all of this, if I were to kind of summarize all of this for you, that we're created in the image of God in terms of substance, that we're created in the image of God in terms of relationship, that we're created in the image of God in terms of rulership. It means that being created in his image um, comes with a certain kind of intrinsic dignity, right? That there is a sense in which we are special, right? That we are not like the rest of the creation, that humans have a special place in God's heart and in the created order. There's a dignity that comes with all of this. Now, if you know anything about the story, you know that not long after these first humans were created, they rebelled, wanted to define goodness for themselves, and when they sinned, they welcomed demonic influence into the world, and it is true 
that that, all of the sin and the welcoming of the demonic, did tarnish our capacity to reflect his likeness, did tarnish our ability to rule, did tarnish our ability to relate. However, the testimony of Scripture is that even after that sinful event, the image of God itself was not removed from the human race. We are still created in his image, right? Maybe our capacities have been diminished because of sin. Maybe we don't represent God as well as we should, right? But we are still fundamentally created in his image. The scriptures themselves testify to this. Generations later, in the time of Noah and the flood, God pronounces a curse on the act of murder in Genesis 9, verse 6. And he roots, the, he roots this curse in the fact that people are created in his image. He says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made humankind. This is why murder is wrong, because it's an offense to the image of God in that person. But it's not just things like murder, the heinous things that are an offense to the image of God and another person. Uh, it's all sin. One thing we learn in the scriptures is that sin is always relational. We, we tend to think of sin as it's just you know, what I do and, and how I've offended God, but sin is always relationship breaking with each other as well. And so even something like the way we use our words has the ability to offend the image of God and another person. It says this in the New Testament in James 3, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings. Why is that wrong? Because they've been made in God's likeness. Cursing our fellow human being up close or from a distance is an offense to the image of God in that person. And here I should point out that although sin has diminished our capacities for relationship and rulership and all of these things, even though we reflect God not as well as we should, um, that even when people are experiencing the effects of sin, you know, when they're sinning, when they're doing the wrong thing and they're enslaved to that thing, um, or when they're suffering, as a result of sin or just as a result of living in a broken world and suffering is kind of breaking down the capacities of that person. Um, or when someone is sick, when someone is not physically whole, none of those things remove the image of God from a person, right? If they're sick and they're not whole, if they're missing, right, part of their body or a function, that person is still created in the image of God, amen? And um, we still affirm this, that to some degree, they're still God's imprint, right? That they're made for a relationship with him. If they're doing the wrong thing, um, if they're sinning, if they're experiencing some, some kind of suffering that's breaking them down, that's breaking down their capacity, none of that fundamentally removes from them the fact that they're created in the image of God. So there is not a human on the earth today who is not created in his image. Are you tracking with me? All right. The good news that we preach to the bad news of how God's image has been reduced in its capacity within us and offended against by one another, here, here's the good news, is that God became human to redeem what it means to be human. That Jesus came to earth as a human. It says in Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God. We were saying during our our uh, series on the Bible, that if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, right? If you want the clearest picture of what God is like, because he's the image of the invisible God, he's God's imprint. If you want to know what God is like, the clearest picture 
is to look at Jesus. But track this. If you also want to understand what it truly means to be human, you look at Jesus as well. Because he is the truest definition, not you and me, of what it means to be human. Because he is fully God and because he is fully human, he is the image of God to us, but he is also the truest picture of what it means to be human. So if we want to understand what humans should be like or what their capacities were in God's mind, we look at Jesus. And look what Jesus does when he comes to earth. He represents God and he rules with God, but not in the way that we would have come to understand or expect those things as broken people. In representing God, he comes near to the suffering. He comes near to the poor. He embraces the outcast in ways that even the religious systems of the day couldn't tolerate. In ruling with God, he uses his power to go low and to serve other people. That's always what rulership was intended to be when God gave it to people. He is what humans were always meant to be. He is the possibility of what humans can be. See, the good news is that because of the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Jesus is releasing me and releasing you to be truly human. He is restoring to us what it means to be people created in his image. And this is the language of the New Testament. Look at Romans 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, conformed to the image of his son, looking more and more like Jesus, which is another way to say looking more and more human, looking more and more what God intended for us to be, the possibilities and what it means to be people created in his image. Or 1 John chapter 3, but we know that when Christ appears, this is our future hope, we shall be like him. I don't know if you know this, I, I find that a lot, of, a lot of people don't, but we don't just believe that like our spirits are, are going to be saved. You know, that we're going to be floating in heaven like some disembodied spirit. Um, we believe that our bodies will be resurrected. Uh, we believe that these bodies will somehow be resurrected and glorified. Heaven is a very physical place. Um, and in that place, we will exist as God intended us to exist from the beginning, as truly human, as created in his image. But that's the future hope, but it's breaking in on the earth now. All of those future blessings are breaking in now because of the ministry of Jesus. And so we move from strength to strength, from glory to glory, being made more and more into his image and likeness. God is restoring the image of God in us. It was never lost, but he's restoring and rebuilding it. And this, friends, is why we have to talk about reconciliation between people as we do ministry because God is restoring the dignity of people today on the earth who have had their dignity attacked and diminished by oppressive systems. Today, he is doing that. And we get to partner with him in it. And he is restoring relationships between people. As that oppression has split people into camps and groups and tribes, made some of us oppressors and some of us oppressed, he is restoring relationships between people. This is part of what it means to be a people in our communities, in our neighborhoods and the nations. Uh, that is seeking the restoration of what it means to be created in the image of God. Now, let's make this very personal. Um, one concept that's helpful for me in understanding how we 
sometimes offend the image of God in other people is to think about this concept of the other. Um, Remember that God made people, male and female, both fully created in the image of God, but in significant ways, very different from one another. At best, this is an opportunity to affirm the dignity that God has bestowed on somebody who is different than me. And God built, this is before the fall, God built this in from the beginning, um, that part of what it meant to be human was to look at someone who is significantly different than me and to say they've also been created in the image of God, that they also are an imprint, that they also carry something of what it means to be human. But at worst, seeing someone who is very different than us uh, becomes an excuse for us uh, to see someone as less than human, um, to see someone that we are not responsible for, um, to discount the other person's dignity because they are different. So when you think about learning to love the other, I want you to think about this. The other is the person that we least identify with, that is most different than us. And I don't know who this is for you. It's the person that we view as so different that we might be tempted to not fully recognize or fully honor the God-given dignity that's been put into their life, just like it's been put into my life. Now, it's appropriate to note here the way that we make excuses when it comes to our participation in honoring the image of God of other people. Here's what I find, generally speaking, and just track with me for a second. I find that when Christians engage these topics in broad generalities, they rarely think that they have any responsibility or problem right? So if I were to ask most people sitting in most churches, does God love everybody no matter their skin color? The answer would be yes, right? Um, If I were to ask, does God love rich people just like he loves poor people? Most Christians in most churches are, are going to say yes. We know the answers to these questions. Far and few between are the people that I've met who would boldly and, and, uh, you know, openly say, no, God loves one skin color more than another skin color. Some of that person's just a supremacist, right? And they're probably not sitting in our churches, right? So I find that most Christians, um, when, we, when we're talking in broad generalities, they're able to engage this with the right answers. Where, where the nitty gritty happens is in our actual interactions with each other. Um, so for instance, It might be that you could answer the question, yeah, God loves all skin colors the same, but if you took time to reflect, is there a certain kind of white person that's harder for you? Is there a certain kind of black person that's harder for you? Is there a certain kind of poor person when you see them do something that's harder for you to love? Is there a certain kind of rich person that feels like it stirs up some kind of negative emotion in you. And I want to just encourage some honesty surrounding these issues because nobody wants to be called a racist, right? It's like, especially the way our national discourse is happening, it's like the worst thing that you could be called, right? So nobody wants to be called. So here's what I hear from Christians all the time. I'm not a racist. I love everybody. I want to challenge that a little bit. Really, you love everybody perfectly? That's a phenomenal statement. That's an amazing, I have not yet reached that point, right? But we just throw it out like there's no problem. I I have no problem loving everybody. There's just no reflection in that. 
right? Um, there's no honesty in that. And I want to say that because of grace, you don't have to be afraid of addressing these issues. I love what Paul says about himself when he's writing to Timothy. He says that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Like Paul's like, you're looking for who's the worst? You're looking for someone to put at the bottom? It's me, right? Let me tell you what that is. That's a life informed by grace. See, the life that knows that God loves them is the life that can honestly face sin because there's nothing to fear, not even the worst parts of ourselves. We can look at even the worst parts of ourselves, the parts that we might not want to admit to other people because of grace, because God loves sinners, and that's good news. It means that I can face even the ugly things as well. Or sometimes I'll hear people say, I don't believe these are issues in our society. I don't believe that racism or division between people is, is a problem in our society. First of all, friends, that really discounts so many of the stories of people of color, even who are in our family, our church, our network. So I would give you a strong admonition to listen before you make statements like that. Because um, it's so easy to just discount people's whole experiences because it's unfamiliar to us. So first of all, listen. But secondly, I would say this, that even if we didn't have the stories of the people of color, for instance, who are in the gospel tab or who are in our network, um, I would say that the Bible says that this is an issue in all societies at all times. Who, who do we think we are? Some kind of enlightened society that has somehow overcome this sin? Um, if I asked you, do you think lying is a problem in our society or do you think we've overcome that? Um, you would say, no, of course we still lie. Um, do you think adultery is a problem in our society or do you think we've overcome that? Well, of course, I would argue there isn't one part of the law that still isn't being broken in our society, right? And part of that involves the fracturing that happens along lines of race and class. So stories aside, political debates aside, I'm going to let the Bible define reality for me. And the scriptures say that this is a very human problem. In all times, in all places, people have divided into tribes along lines of race or ethnicity or class and expressed hatred towards one another. It's a human problem that's present in the human heart. Once we can get honest with that and honest with the love and the grace of God, it means we can begin to face even the things that we don't see about ourselves. It means that we can begin to ask some honest questions. So the work in growing to honor the image of God in one another, it doesn't happen in the generalities. It happens in the specifics. And when we recognize the other, the person that we can least identify with and how we don't honor them, then we can gain the capacity to reflect more deeply on these questions. So let me just offer some reflection questions. And I'm going to try to model some vulnerability and answer some of these for you. One, is there a kind of person that stirs up initial negative emotions in you? And don't make it like the most general person you can think of. I mean, like you see this person in Walmart. You feel me? Right? You, you see, or, or you know when some of this comes out for me is when a person does something a little bit wrong, like they're in Walmart and they cut in line, right, in front of you or something like that. And then you recognize that your emotions are outsized, right, for what's happening. Sometimes it's because it's this kind of person that stirs up these initial negative emotions. I'll give you an example of this in my own life. Um, the college that I went to in North Georgia um, was uh, in the 70s, there was a, a flood that happened there. It's a whole story, but it took the lives of like 44 people on campus in the middle of the night, many of them children. Really tragic event. So my freshman year 
at the college was the 25th anniversary of the flood. So there was this big event. The governor of the state of Georgia landed on our campus. Uh, you know, representatives from FEMA who had responded um, came, and we just remembered and memorialized this terrible event. Well, it drew all of these media outlets. And one of the media outlets present was an openly white supremacist media outlet. I'm talking like swastikas, like on their shirts and like the whole thing. And they're here, they have a white supremacist, you know, newspaper, and they're here covering this event, you know, for some reason. And so, you know, they're present, and at some point, I got really uh, close to the reporter. This guy's an open white supremacist. And this guy just had a look about him, um, and the clothes he was wearing, all this, and and my initial response was like revulsion. This is what happens with the other, is like, I'm nothing like that, right? I'm nothing like that. I do not want to be, and sometimes this is complicated. Notice I'm telling a story about another white person. Sometimes this happens even within our own racial or ethnic group because we're trying to define ourselves as different than the person in our own group that we don't want to be like, right? And so I'm trying to really like focus on how I'm different than this person, right? And right then, as I was standing next to him, I just felt like I heard the Lord speak to me. And here's why. It's because um, I had had some other interactions in North Georgia, out in public. Some people, like at different points, weird experiences had come up to me and used a racial slur with me. It's like because we had the same skin color. We were automatically on the same team or something. And there was something in me that was like, yo, I'm not like you, right? I'm not like this. And I realized that those few negative experiences had made me categorize a whole group of people that lived in the North Georgia mountains that kind of looked like this guy, right? Like I didn't want to be anything like that. I don't even know that many people in the North Georgia mountains, but I realized that as I drove through these communities, I was thinking about these negative experiences in this guy, categorizing a whole group of people that I don't even know in the North Georgia mountains and being like, I'm white, but I'm not that kind of white, right? identifying a person as the other. And I just felt the Lord like put something on my heart. If you know me, you know that like um, we, my wife and I had some of the greatest joys of our lives have been being welcomed uh, into the homes and communities of African-American people. But I just felt the Lord saying to me, you cannot define your love for black people by hatred of people who live in the North Georgia mountains, right? Um, that's not what my love is going to look like. Like, my, my capacity for love is, like God was saying, my capacity for love somehow encompasses all of this, right? Um, and, uh, and so here's what I did. I befriended a family that lived in a trailer park, um, a white family that lived in a trailer park in the North Georgia mountains. Um, they weren't anything like that white supremacist guy. They were very, very different than me. But I allowed that relationship to expand my capacity for what it meant to love someone that I didn't want to identify with. You feel me? Um, and so this is what I'm saying. You, you could just spout off something like, no, I don't have these problems, but I don't think I'm the only one with these problems. Just being real with you, all right? <laughs> okay, or this question. What kind of person makes you feel the most afraid when you get around them? Let me tell you another story. Before college and graduate school, I had, especially in Western Pennsylvania, our, our neighborhoods are so segregated. I had very little reason to be in neighborhoods where people look different than me, 
right? Now I live in a neighborhood where most people look different than me, but that, that's very different, right, than how I grew up. Um, and so when I got into graduate school, especially, I, I ended up in Philadelphia hanging out in some places. Um, some of those places were Chinatown. Um, I would walk through Chinatown on, on my way to class. Some of those places were in African-American neighborhoods in Philadelphia. And one day I'm walking through Chinatown, kind of looking around, and it occurs to me that for whatever reason in Chinatown, I do not feel afraid. Uh, but if I were walking through one of those African-American neighborhoods alone, I might feel afraid. Now, this gets really, really deep because both of those feelings, whether we recognize it or not, we have inherited by forces that have programmed us to view ethnic and racial minorities in certain ways. Um, it's not like I ever consciously had the thought, but it's like I kind of had been programmed by my culture to view Asian people as nonviolent and passive, which, by the way, has opened the door for certain kinds of racism to be perpetrated against them. And I had kind of been programmed to view African-Americans and their neighborhoods as more dangerous, which, by the way, has opened the door for certain kinds of injustices and violence to be perpetrated against them. And it's not like I ever had consciously had this thought until I'm walking through this neighborhood. It doesn't matter. It's my thoughts. I'm responsible for it before God, right? And because of grace, I can face this. Because of grace, I can honestly say, here's what's in my heart. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, and I want to reflect more of his love. Because, by the way, those thoughts don't just diminish the image of God in those people. Those thoughts diminish the image of God in me, right? Diminish my capacity, diminish his imprint. I want to be free from those things. I've got to wrap up here. Here's another question. Is there a group of people that you categorize as worse than you in some way? Sometimes it doesn't even have to do with race and class. A lot of times I'm talking to people and they tell me about a kind of person who does a certain kind of thing, a certain kind of sin, and it's like they need this person with this sin issue that they don't have to be a rung lower on the ladder than them, right? At least I'm not that. I'm bad, but I'm not that. Can you think of a person like that? Or can you imagine a group of people, a tribe, that you most dislike? Next week, we're going to be talking about tribalism. Um, I'm going to define that for you, but I think it is one of the biggest issues a family on mission like us is facing in 2021. So we have to talk about it. Um, but can you think of a tribe of people that you most dislike? And then ask yourself this, is it easy for you to think that you might be able to learn from them? Or that God is working among them? Because this is part of that rulership relationship thing. Even your enemies have the capacity to relate to God. Even your enemies have the capacity to rule with God. So the most common example I, I can think of here are the political tribes that exist. I, I hear people just say, well, conservatives do this or liberals do this, right? When I hear people talk that way, I'm going to be like, yo, do you know, do you even know any of those people? Do you even hang around? Are you friends with any of them? Could you count any of them? Your friend? But more than that, could you imagine learning from them? as people who are created in God's image? And could you imagine that God is working among them, even if they don't name or believe in God, because you don't have to name or believe in God for his image to be present in you. This is something that precedes salvation. It's present at birth, before birth. Um, that God is working among this people. And this is, this is so important for mission, friends, because this is part of what it means to be on mission as we go into different tribes, not to get to my sermon next week. 
We have to be able to recognize where God is working among people that we might even dislike if we're going to follow him on mission into those places. If we can't recognize that God is there, we're going to go in as some kind of conqueror or we're going to avoid them. But what we want to do is recognize God is working among this people, even though they believe something very different than me. Okay, here's how I'd like to end. I've said a lot. Are you all okay? You good? This is hard, heavy stuff. Love you guys. All right, take a deep breath. Um, How do we get better at honoring the image of God in each other? Do you just try harder? Do we just reflect deeper? Do we become more introspective? I am encouraging you to reflect during this series, but is that really the answer? Just reflecting deeper? Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes the more introspective I get, the more depressed I get. You know what I mean? Um, So is that the answer? I would say it's not. It's important to reflect. But here's what I would say is the key to honoring the image of God and other people. Thanks, brother. Here's what I would say is the key to honoring the image of God and other people. It's recognizing the image of God in you. You see, when I meet someone who, who needs a group of people to be beneath them, when I meet someone who can't face their own prejudice or bias, when I meet someone who wants to write off a whole group of people, you know, and just use these terms to label them, what I always think, and it might just be like from years of doing ministry now, but what I always think is somewhere in this person, they don't know that they're loved. See, because if they were secure in God's love, they wouldn't need to prop themselves up over and above another person. They, they wouldn't need to distance themselves like I was doing with that guy. I'm nothing like this guy. Um, they'd be able to come in close to those issues, come in close to that, and ask what God is doing to deal with this evil. Um, and that's what it means to be on mission. Like To be on mission into these hard places we got to be a people who know that God loves us. How else are we going to go into these places? If we don't know, how are we going to go into whatever neighborhood God calls you into? And trust me, it goes all the way. Some of you might feel afraid in black neighborhoods, but some of you might really feel afraid in white neighborhoods, right? How are you going to go there if Jesus calls you there? If you don't know that you're loved, if you don't know that he's your father, if you don't know that he has you, right? So here's the good news. I want to preach to the bad news of wherever you're feeling deficient in God's love today. Listen to this. God made you like him. Think of, the dig- think of what I'm saying. Think of the dignity in that. No matter who you are, no matter what skin color, no matter what socioeconomic class, God made you like him. It's amazing. You know, the first, one of the first commands, right, from Mount Sinai to the people in the law, you shall not create an image for yourself. Now, one of the reasons for that command is because God doesn't want us worshiping something else. But here's another reason why he gives that command. God is like, you don't need to create an image because I've already filled this earth with images of me. That's why you don't need to create something else that looks like an animal. That's why you don't need to create, that's why you don't need to worship something like money or success or power. Because I've already filled this earth with images of me. I'd encourage this in expanding your capacity to honor the image of God in other people. Begin to watch people 
as a way of worshiping God. Not worshiping them, but worshiping God. I've been in a lot of airports the last few weeks. I'm going to be in a few more airports in the next coming weeks. And I don't know, the more I, I've, I'm okay with just being honest with my issues and the ways I'm deficient and my love for other people, the more I let myself just feel what I'm feeling as I walk around the airport. And there's people who look different than me. There's people I want to judge their stories. There's people with political stickers on. There's room for judgment all around, right? I was in the airport yesterday. Where was I? In Midway, Chicago, Midway Airport. And there was a person who had dyed their dog, their white dog, rainbow colors. Like, yeah, why would you do that? You know what I mean? Like, I don't get it. I don't get that kind of person. You know what I mean? But I'd encourage you to do this, to look at all those differences next time you're in an airport or a mall and say, somehow these people are the image of God. Somehow this actually lets me understand God better. Somehow it lets me understand his love better. And I can do that because God loves me. If we're ever going to see reconciliation between groups of people, if we're going to start talking about the way power has been used against certain groups of people, then we have to understand this first, that the image of God is present in the oppressed. The image of God is present in the oppressor. And our role stepping into these places is somehow to bring restoration to all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.